0: My name is Jason Jefferies, and this is Bookend, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Hugo and Locus award winning author John Scalzi, author of Red Shirts, the Old Man's War series, and the Interdependency Saga, the third volume of which is the upcoming novel, The Last Emperor, published by our friends at Tor. John, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. It's great to
0: be here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, John, we scheduled this podcast because you were going to be here at Quail Ridge Books in Raleigh for your book tour, a tour that has been canceled due to right. the coronavirus. And um, this is a two-part question. First, how are you doing and how are you living your life in these interesting times? And two, how are you approaching the promotion of a new book when you can't tour and when many bookstores are closed?
1: Right, Uh, those are both really good questions. The first is, um, the way I explain it to people is when I'm at home, I basically live in rural Ohio and I'm on five acres of land and uh, I basically only see my cats and my family. So in many ways, the quarantine and lockdown it's just Tuesday for me. You know what I mean. It's just this is this is how I do things. Um, so for me, and I actually enjoy uh, this sort of isolation. because when I have previously toured and done events and everything else like that, when I would go home, one of the nice things is uh, that I wouldn't have to see people. I'm kind of an introvert. I get peopled out pretty quickly. Um, so being able to just kind of go. <sighs> And not see anybody but family and pets is, has been a good thing. So we're about two and a half weeks into our kind of quarantine thing. And so far, I've been fine. Uh, my daughter is kind of missing her boyfriend. And my wife, who is who is an extrovert, uh, also is, you know, she's doing home projects. And she is our one appointed person to go to the store um so she gets to she gets to leave the house and that's important for her but for me i'm just like this is life this is what i do anyway so so far so good with regard to um doing a book tour um it's a little i mean i'm not gonna lie it's a little frustrating i mean for a couple reasons the first is that i actually despite what i just said about when i'm done being people, you know, full of, uh, people experiences. I go home and don't want to see people. The fact is I actually do like doing book tours. I do like doing events. I like seeing the readers. I like performing for the readers. Um, and so when they told me, it's like, we have to cancel your tour. It's not personal. We're canceling everybody's tours. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, Fair, you know, I don't want people to come out in the middle of a quarantine to see me and risk infecting, um, you know, others or infecting, getting infected themselves, or you know, bluntly infecting me. So, uh, as far as it goes, it is what it is. We are finding ways to um, do things online. We are doing. We're doing podcasts. I'm doing interviews. I am doing more media stuff than I normally would do uh, to try to compensate. And then also just, just doing the stuff as a person with a presence online. The thing I've always said to people is that doing things like book tours and doing things like events is great if you're the sort of person who enjoys doing book tours and events. And if you're not, then they're kind of deadly. You just find some other way to do it. And so now I'm in the situation of having to take my own advice. I can't do a book tour, so now what do I do? And part of it is what I'm doing right now. Part of it is you know talking to other people. Part of it is signing books for bookstores so that they'll have signed copies at least um so we're doing what we're doing what we can and we're going to find out what works and what doesn't.
0: Right, thank you, John. And I do want to remind everyone that Quail Ridge Books is offering free shipping right now and for the foreseeable future, and you can order uh, signed copies of John Scalzi's new book, The Last Impro, at www.quailridgebooks.com. Um, John, I wanted to talk about the specifics of The Last Impro, but first, I want to talk about this trilogy of books as a whole. I've read this entire trilogy over the course of the past week, and listeners, I cannot recommend these books highly enough. This is the trilogy you want to read right now if you were stuck at home, and even if you're not. Um, And John, for our listeners who are not familiar with your books, can you explain the concepts of the interdependency and the flow?
1: Yeah. So, basically what happens is there's an interstellar empire, um... And the way that people get around, they can't go by warp engines because there's no such thing as faster than light. But there is this thing called the flow, which is a multidimensional sort of thing that straddles normal space-time and is not bound by its rules. So you can enter it and travel within the flow. And operationally it works just the same as going faster than the speed of light Um, so that is what the flow is and it's been naturally occurring phenomenon uh, that connects all these star systems together and it has been stable for more than a thousand years so people have just come to rely on it and they have built this interstellar empire on the basis of well we're able to get from one star system to another using this intergalactic river um, but the thing is is when the book series starts the flow is beginning to shift uh, which means that the routes are closing down, some are opening it up uh, very briefly uh, but things are changing and in a way that uh, ultimately means that the entire system is going to collapse. The system as they know it is doomed. And so the whole story of the trilogy is people coming to terms with the idea that their civilization um, is going to change drastically because of a natural event that they have no control over and that fundamentally is not uh, interested in any of their concerns. Weirdly, Timely. I did not intend this to happen.
0: Right. Thank you, John. And these are fascinating concepts um regarding the flow this is something that the characters in the books find difficult to wrap their minds around as they are often stating that they don't understand it um i'm curious why highlight that it is a concept that the characters themselves don't understand it is the flow in the interdependency like relativity or string theory or something on earth uh regarding people know that it is a thing but most likely don't quite understand it
1: yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, the mathematics of the flow, uh, which is incidentally very, very vaguely uh, related uh, related to uh, concepts of cosmology that exist uh, currently, um, but they're so but it's so abstruse that the actual function of it um, is very difficult for for most people to understand. Now, I'm a big believer. I used to write science books and I used to write articles about science, and I'm a big believer that. of everything is explainable to 100% of people. If they're interested, you can tell them 80% of germ theory. You can tell them 80% of quantum physics. You can tell them 80% of relativity. All the stuff that gives them a good basic grounding in this stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's that extra 20% that you need the math for, that you need the context for, that um, that is really difficult. And in the relationship to the flow, that's basically what I'm saying. Is everybody understands how it works, that there, this is a thing that you can go into and that it will get you places faster than the speed of light, even though it is uh, not actually going faster than the speed of light because it sort of exists in its own separate category. It's basically like a bolt-on universe on top of our universe. So they get that concept. But the actual mechanics of how it works is something that people are still arguing about. Much in the same way that in our current era, we are not 100% sure how a lot of things relating to quantum theory work. Or, for example, um, we can describe physics up until the moment that's called Planck's time, which is just an infinitesimal fraction of a second um, after the initiation of the Big Bang. That space between the initiation of the Big Bang and Planck's time, again, just an infinitesimal fraction of a second, the models of physics break down entirely and we can't explain what happened. And part of the excitement of physics right now is trying to figure out how we close that particular gap. In the same way, um, the flow is understood by... Uh, generally, by everybody uh, through the use of metaphor, and specifically by a much smaller number of people who have done flow physics and understand the math.
0: Right. Thanks, John. Um, another concept that I want to introduce listeners to, uh, those listeners who are not familiar with your books, is that of the impro. This book is called The Last Impro. Can you tell us about this position of the impro?
1: yeah so the uh, emperor some people have pronounced it because uh, you know it's got an x at the end uh, and the way that I've been telling people is that's a, an accent choice you know there's, yeah, I'm not going to criticize people for one or the other um, although the audiobook has it as emperor so uh, canonically it, that's the way that I pronounce it uh, but the, the it's an emperor you know or an empress, or a, you know but it's a non-gender specific title uh, because in the second book we discovered that uh, while they were trying to develop the inter- dependency as, a, as an empire, um, they did marketing tests and they found that the uh, non-gender specific title uh, sold better. So that's the one that they went with, which I thought was kind of uh, a funny little uh, bit to put in. But the emperor is basically the person who runs the entire universe as, as uh, understood within the context of the uh, the uh, interdependency and some of them are very active uh, emperors they you know, take a real interest in what's going on a lot of them are like I'm going to let underlings handle this and just parade around uh, it really depends on the person who is in the office. The emperor that we spend the most time with Uh, is Emperor Graylin II, uh, who was known as Cardenia uh, Wu Patrick before uh, she became the Emperor. And she is sort of an accidental Emperor. She was not the one that was groomed for the position. Uh, Her older brother was, but the older brother uh, dies before the events of the books. And so she's kind of thrust thrust last minute into the position. And in many ways, um, she's not ready for it and because when she starts she's not ready for it a lot of uh, the characters in the book think that she's going to be a weak weak emperor and that they will be able to basically do whatever they want but uh, it turns out uh, that she is slowly but surely growing into the position and she is also aware of and concerned about the collapse of the flow so a lot of the books is uh, concerned about her development as a as a leader and as a human being.
0: Right. Thank you. And now that our listeners know what an impro is, I would like to talk about the memory room. Um, the impro has access to this room, the memory room. Where she, in this case, can pull up a computer simulation, sort of a hologram of all of the past impros. And these simulations of the past impros have the memories. Of the real life Impros uploaded to them so that the current Impro can converse uh, with the past, uh, with each of those that preceded her or him. Um, where did this concept come from, and can you imagine? presidents doing this type of thing i certainly cannot imagine donald trump taking advantage of such an opportunity but the idea of obama conversing with lincoln or roosevelt opens up all sorts of possibilities
1: right um i mean i think and I, quite honestly i think probably a lot of the uh, emperors uh didn't use the opportunity for the memory room because like our current president they feel very strongly that they don't need anybody else's help. And then there will be other ones who would be, no, in fact, I want the advice. I do want the insight that other people could uh, offer me who have been in this particular position. Um, I think... It's not a um, thing that I've seen too much before in science fiction in this particular iteration. I have seen quite obviously the idea of people being basically stored into computer memory and being spun up and so on and so forth. Um, In fact, uh, right now there's a very popular television series based on um, uh, Richard K. Morgan's uh, Altered Carbon books uh, where people are basically turned into you know hard drives uh, and then their bodies are called sleeves and they can just go from one to the other. So the concept of memories being preserved in that way is not particularly new. The idea of it being limited to um, a specific leader and them using it in a very specific room I think is is the new thing. But you know I think that this is an idea that is kind of appealing to a lot of people not just you know for example leaders. I mean wouldn't it be cool for you to be able to talk to your great 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 grandparent and say you know say in 1770 how would you solve this particular problem and they would say well we would do x y or z and it would be completely different from the way you would do it but maybe we'd give you some insight on uh how to deal with a problem or you could ask them personal problems, because humans are pretty much the same in 1700 uh, and in 2100 and in, you know, 3100. Uh, people don't change all that much, and so the personal dynamics are going to be uh, the same, even if the culture has changed, uh, you know, quite a bit. I think a lot of people would love to be able to, you know, be able to access the memories of uh their their ancestors and maybe find some insight there so that was the uh reason that i put it in because i thought that would be kind of an interesting tool for um an emperor to have
0: thank you john listeners we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors and then i will be right back with john Scalzi. The Bookin' Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro FM. That's libr dot FM, and enter Bookin B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with John Scalzi, author of The Interdependency Saga, the upcoming third volume of which is The Last Impro, published by our friends at TOR. John, when you started this saga, you mentioned the presidential election of 2016 and how the first book, titled The Collapsing Empire, may have mirrored certain goings-on in the United States of America, though you had no idea at the time of writing it how things were going to shake out. I mention this because line one, chapter one of this new volume, The Last Emperor, reads as follows. Let's be clear about what's going on. It's the end of civilization as we know it, and it's going to be great for business. I can't help but read this line thinking about what's going on in the world right now, so my question for you, John, is are you a prophet?
1: <laughs> oh, I wish I was not. Um, and and the answer to that is I'm absolutely not. But the thing is that I also write of books in the era that I live in, and so they can't help but be influenced. When you were talking about the first book, um, you were mentioning kind of the things that I was talking about in the afterword. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote. Um, the collapsing empire, and while the 2016 election cycle was happening, it was just before the election that it got finished, mm-hmm. um, and so I we didn't know who had won the election at that particular time, and I was it was really enervating to try to write a book um, during that election period because. And um, the, the the choices were so starkly different, uh, and it seems like um, you know things are being. Unleashed that weren't necessarily going to be great, no matter what. Uh, and so it was—it was difficult to keep focus. And this has been a fact of life for the last four years. I have managed somehow um, to write four books uh, during the last four years, and not only four books, but also a couple of novellas, you know, a couple of other things as well. I've kept myself busy, but it's never been. Um, as difficult as it has been in the last four years, um, just to focus on the writing of the books, and sometimes that has meant um, that I've had to play catch up. I I wrote the second book in this series called "The Collapsing," uh, excuse me, "The Consuming Fire." I wrote it basically in two weeks because I was so wrapped up at what was going on in the time frame uh, that I was uh, writing it, you know, what was going on politically with the world and everything else like that, that all of a sudden I ran out of time. I was, you know, it was June 4th, the book was due June 18th, uh, and it just had to get done. So I ended up writing 8,000 words a day until it was was done. Um, And, in uh, one sense, that was cool to know that I could do that and that the writing muscles were there. Uh, but on the other hand, I, n- I would never, ever do that again. And I absolutely don't recommend it for anyone. It was a terrible way to, to write a book. I didn't tell anybody about that until the book came out and it had gotten good reviews. And it landed on the New York Times bestseller list because by then I was like, okay, now I can reveal my terrible secret. Um, but it was very difficult and it continues to be very difficult. Um, the The issue is not necessarily uh, the particular president that we have now, although the particular president isn't helping at all. What it is is that the president plus... Uh, general political turmoil, plus the fact that there is, you know, uh, we are really experiencing the acceleration of climate change, plus everything else. um, is So much is pulling focus. And this isn't just me. It's almost every writer that I've talked to, as well as editors and most creative people. They're like, "Uh," you know, stuff is getting done uh, haphazardly um, in many ways, if if at all. So, absolutely in whether intentionally or not the books reflect the time that we live in when i started writing this uh this series um i had no idea um that the books would basically form fit the time that we live in as closely as they do the impetus for the books was not even something that was topical i mean it it's easy to say um you know, it's like with the titles of the collapsing Empire or the idea that you know this natural phenomenon uh, is changing the world, that it was tied into uh, politics or into climate change or all that sort of stuff. But my initial sort of thought experiment that brought out these books was what would have happened in the uh, in the uh, European era of exploration, which is basically the 1400s through the 1700s, um, if trade wins, and trade currents just disappeared. How would have things been different? How would have Europe coped with that? Uh, and how would the world have changed? And that's very abstract um This thinking about climate change from 300, 400 years in the past, um, and then bringing it forward as a a story. But as it turns out, again, as I wrote it, and as events happened and affected me as a writer, um, more of the real world uh, began to leak in, whether I had intended it to or not. And it's really funny to me, uh, particularly in this book, um, how much again, completely unintentionally, um, the real world is leaking in. There is a uh, point in the book where um, contracts... Uh, are a major issue, and a major issue is the force majeure clause uh, in contracts, right? Which, when I wrote it, I was like, oh, this is clever. I can use force majeure uh, as a way to, you know, uh, move the plot along. Uh, As it turns out, right now, as we speak, force majeure clauses in contracts are being exercised all over the place because of the, uh, the coronavirus where people are like there is no way we could have possibly expected this to happen and it's completely changing the world this is from a legal point of view and a legal term of art an act of God force majeure and so to actually have something that I was like this is an obscure point of law that I can use to move my plot along to it actually being something people are using in a very rural sense in the real world I'm not a prophet but I sure
0: nailed that one right thank you John I was actually I was on a panel yesterday um, with some other small businesses where a lawyer was talking to us about force majeure definitely a a timely topic Um, I'm going to continue to spin on this line of questioning for a moment Sure. there is currently this absurd idea in the United States of America in certain corners of it at least that we must reopen the economy early during this pandemic and that the health of um, our elders is inconsequential. Um, Our elders, in other words, ought to be willing to die for the future of our economy. This element of our current news cycle is going through my mind as I read the first line of chapter 8, which is also the first line of book 2 in this novel, The Last Emperor. And that line is, while the elite of the interdependency were making their plans to abandon the common people to their fate. The common people of the interdependency were beginning to come to grips with what exactly that fate was. Uh, can you please talk about these lines for a moment, John?
1: I mean, it is, it is what it is. It's the idea of, um, there's a division. There's a division between Um, a group of people who is invested in the continuation of a system, in this case the interdependency and their advantages that they get and uh, the people who uh, are not as who live in the system but do not receive all the benefits of it and what their uh, particular interest is. And I think that mirrors the way that people live. I mean I think that there is uh, I hate to say there are two types of people because there's there's always, you know, that uh, that's always a gross simplification. But for the purposes of this discussion, there are two types of people. There are the people who are invested in systems and then there are the people who are invested in people. And the people who are invested in people are less worried about, um, you know, whether or not uh, we... Uh, have a short-term economic crunch while everybody stays at home in order to impede the, uh, the uh, transmission of this particular virus, right? But then there are the people who are absolutely invested in the system who saw the value of the Dow um, go disappear by about a third in the space of two weeks. And they're like, we need to get this system back up because without the system, then we're, we're all doomed. The answer is somewhere, I mean, as these things are, the answer is somewhere in the middle. What can we do in order to preserve uh, the systems that need and, and should be preserved um, while at the same time uh, being flexible about uh, making sure that people don't die? The simple fact of the matter is if we all went back out and on um, the day after Easter and resumed our lives as if nothing happened, um we, our infection rates would go through the roof um, because the virus doesn't care about our systems. It doesn't care about our culture. It doesn't care about our nation states. It doesn't care about any human concern. All it is concerned about um, is its own propagation and its propagation is through infection and its infection comes through uh, social contact. You know, um, so the simple fact of the matter is we are being confronted with an enemy in a war. And you can hear my quotation marks of both of those uh, who literally is not playing by any rules that, that we are playing by. But if you are super concerned about the system, it's more important for you that the system get up and running again um, than the idea that individual people within that system um, are going to be affected by it. This is particularly the case if you believe that you are an elite who is not going to be affected in the same way as the mass might be, like that you have the ability to quarantine yourself off um, and you won't be affected. And one of the things that we are finding out about this particular virus is that it has absolutely no respect for whether you're elite or not. Uh, Today, I don't know when this is going up, but today as we're talking about this, uh, we have discovered that Boris Johnson, who is the prime minister of um, the UK, uh, has tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, you know, uh, so so uh, a number of our senators. Um, so in terms of how it transmits, um, it is absolutely ecumenical. It does not care if you're rich or if you're poor, uh, what your race, creed, color, uh, nationality is. All it cares is that somebody who had the virus on them has connected with you in some way. Um, and the thing is that... Um, We are going to see, I mean, we cover this a little bit in the book, uh, but we are going to see it in real time as well, um, where people are invested. Are they invested in systems? Are they invested in people? Are they invested somewhere in the middle? What can we, what are we going to do when we are confronted with these choices? I mean... No spoilers for the third book, but when you read the third book, you will find out kind of what my position is, uh, and it is very much not necessarily with the systems. But the you know the simple fact of the matter is you know, we are living in real time. What the people in the book are also living through, which is um, the there's a number of people who are perfectly willing to sacrifice uh, other people. Uh, as long as the gears of industry run. You know, if the gears of industry need to be uh, lubricated with, with the blood of your grandmother, um, then they're perfectly willing to do that. And they think that your grandmother should volunteer for that. Whether or not your grandmother agrees with that or you agree with it is going to be uh, another uh, matter entirely. And I think, again, um, a lot of this will change uh a lot of a lot of people's particular points of view are going to change when it stops being abstract uh and starts being something that affects them personally right now i only know one person uh who has contracted the coronavirus um and they're doing fine uh but i know lots of people who now know people who have died and as time goes on I'm going to know people who are um, infected who are not going to just recover easily from this. I'm going to know people who died from it. And when someone you know and when someone you care about um, is affected by it, um, then it stops being this abstraction. And then and, and you stop caring so much about whether your uh, long term. Uh, you know, portfolio uh, is you know in the tank right now. You're going to be caring about the fact that um, someone you know has died. And here's the thing that's absolutely true about our economy and, and and the way our system works. The way our system works is, in the long run, up to date. It pans out, right? Uh, I've I lost in the last couple of weeks on paper hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in in investments. But the fact of the matter is um, I don't retire for another 20 years at least, if letters in fact ever retire. Mm -hmm. Um, So over 20 years, those losses are going to be absorbed, right, Uh, and and I will probably, and every other investor has a long-term window on these things is probably going to be fine. But the people who die don't come back, right the you know your grandmother is not going to come back your child if your child has a suppressed immunological system is not coming back your friends are not coming back and you have to decide for yourself which is more important your stock portfolio um, or the people you will never get back and that's kind of where we are
0: it is. Uh, thank you so much, John. On a note that is a bit less serious, uh, can you tell? <laughs> can you tell us about the names of the ships in this series and how you came to name them?
1: Um, yeah, the names of the ship in the books are kind of a tribute to uh, Ian Banks, who wrote the culture series. Um, And he has, the names of his uh, ships in the culture series and his culture ships are huge, massive ships that are um, you know, that are sentient in their own right, right? Mm -hmm. And they have names like we never agreed to this or my love stares through a window and I gaze upon her lovingly. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I... Wouldn't say that Ian Banks was an influence on my writing as I was growing up, because, uh, you know, I'm 50 now. He started writing by the time I was already an adult. Um, but I was a huge admirer of the Culture Series, and I a uh, a huge admirer of him as a writer. And... Um, So when it came time to name spacecraft, uh, I thought it would be a nice little tip of the hat to Ian Banks to have those sorts of names. Now, a lot of the uh, names of the ships are specific to uh, lyrics of songs from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and the way that I kind of imagined them. Um, is that in that universe, they don't really have any particular relevance. Like, nobody has the idea that, you know, the ship whose name is, if you want to sing out, sing out, is from a Cat Stevens song. You have absolutely no idea. But when it comes time to get ship names, um, basically they are apportioned them by a um, central... Um, Uh, you know, a central bureaucracy who's like, we need to give each of these things distinctive names that don't necessarily have anything to do with anything, but are easy to uh, for humans to remember. And lyrics are easy to remember. So somewhere in the memory of the bureaucracy is this list of lyrics from Earth, you know, 1,500 or more years, 2,000 years ago. uh, And they just... Take a phrase of it and plop it in. It would be very similar to uh, if ship names today were taken from lines from the Odyssey or the Iliad or the uh, Aeneid, um, that sort of thing. So that's kind of how, in my brain, uh, it works. Now, this is never made obvious to the reader, um, you know, how my brain thought about it, uh, because, bluntly speaking, none of it is that particularly interesting as uh, interesting enough to go into the book. I don't want to stop the uh, storytelling of the book to go, but by the way, this is why these ships are named the way that they are. It turns out that there's a bureaucracy blah, 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 blah. Uh, but um, in the world building for myself, I uh, definitely had it there.
0: Thank you, John. These names always made me smile as I was reading through this trilogy. Um, John, there are so many strong women in these novels. Uh, the Emperor of Greyland II, Kiva, uh, Nadashe Nohama and I point this out because you dedicate this novel to the women who are done with other people's shit. Please tell us about this dedication.
1: I w- finished the book um, at the same time that um, I was reading uh, a bunch of Stuff about you know women being exasperated uh, with the world as it is today, and then also um, with a lot of my women friends dealing with a bunch of shit, and just being like, I'm done, done being nice. I'm done being polite. I'm done. Being uh, the person who takes this because it's polite to do so, or because I've been socially conditioned to, uh, you know, accommodate your bullshit, uh, and so um, it's not—it's not me trying to. It's—it's it's very difficult to say something like that, and and and. Uh, not uh someone will accuse me basically of like well you're just doing that to be woke or you're just doing that for the cookies or you're just doing that to be a white knight or any of that sort of stuff and and i have to say quite honestly that that's not why i'm doing that i mean the reason that i'm doing it is um that i just know a whole bunch of my friends are put up with crap that I never have to put up with Um, and they have to put up with it every single day of their lives from people like me you know, they have to put it up with, with, with it for me, too, when I'm completely clueless and I don't recognize that I'm being a dickhead, right? Uh, and fortunately, my friends do feel comfortable enough to be like, hey, you're being a dickhead, could you please stop that? And I'm comfortable enough with going, oh, I guess I was being a dickhead, I'll try not to be a dickhead later. Um, so, you know, I do try learning and I do try improving and I do all that sort of stuff. But I'm not doing it for the cookies, I'm doing it because I want to be a decent human being, Um and um, with respect to the characters in the book, so many of them being women, I mean, half the population of the world is women. You know, why not have your characters be women as well? Not only not only have them be characters from a you know, numerical point of view, but actually try to um, model Uh, the characters as women. I mean, the great difficulty that men often encounter um, writing women is that they don't spend a lot of time modeling women in their brains, right? Uh, Women writers have to model men. Because they're women, and women have to model men in their brains. They have to ask themselves, what does this guy want? What does this guy, why is this guy talking to me? What are his intentions? It's part of their day-to-day life, whereas a guy can literally go their entire life without having to really internally model a woman at all. Um, And a lot of us do. Um, And so uh, when I'm writing women characters, um, I spend time trying to model what women uh, are and how they think and how they approach the world. And the advantage that I have is I know women. I am married to one. My child is one. Uh, I know a lot of uh, women who are our friends, and I can talk to them, and I can ask them, and I can, you know, uh, you know, I have enough of their confidence that they can tell me the things that anger them and frustrate them, and not feel like I'm going to be hashtag not all men about them, you know, to that. And as a writer, that is super useful. I'm not doing it because I'm like, oh well, this will be useful for my writing, but it is useful for my writing. Um, and so when I uh, write. Uh, women characters i'm you know drawing on those experiences from my friends who are women and it's really weird to me um how even the things that make women feel seen the thing that in the first book made was brought to me by so many women women i knew and women i didn't know that were like oh my god you're actually this is actually a woman that character um, is when Grayland is being invested as the intro and she's hot and she's sweaty and she has cramps because she's on a period, right? Uh, And that's just all the stuff's going on while she's becoming the most powerful person in the universe. Um, And so many women got back to me and were like, oh my God, you acknowledged women have periods, right? And I'm like, and part of me was like, yes, because they do. Um, but that isn't about me. It is about how women expect men to model women when they don't want to be thinking about periods and they don't want to be thinking about, uh, you know, all the things that squick dudes out about women uh, that are just a natural part of their processes, you know, of living. Um, and so that was really weirdly revelatory to me uh it doesn't mean that like you know every time i do a woman character now i'm you know considering where they are in their ovulation cycle or anything but it does mean that it was brought home to me that we are so bad at seeing women that just the recognition that a woman could be on a period during the most important day of her life um the recognition that that is a thing that could happen, uh, was, was actually remarkable. And, uh, and I am both glad that I was able to do that. And I feel kind of ashamed for men that, that bar is that low. So, yeah.
0: Right. Thank you so much, John. And, um, finally to, circle back around, Um, even though you may not be a prophet, we have firmly established that you are in tune with one of the strangest elections in the history of the United States, and we have established uh, that you are in tune with the social circumstances surrounding what has become a global uh, pandemic. So, John, um, though you are not a prophet, can you please tell us what's coming next?
1: Um, Well, a lot depends on whether people actually believe epidemiology or if they believe their political leaders you know um here's my advice you know listen to the scientists listen to the epidemiologists listen to the people who um don't have any political gain out of telling you how the virus functions because they are uh they're describing it from uh, epi- epidemiological and viral, uh, virological point of view, and I just screwed up those words, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Listen to the experts, not the, not the politicians. You know, and the thing about it is, um, if we listen to the, if we listen to the scientists, and they're telling us very simple things. They're like wash your hands, stay six feet away from people, you know, stay at home. We are literally a generation of people who is told that you can save the world literally doing nothing. And yet so many of us are having trouble doing that. And part of it is because people are just not used to doing nothing they always have to be doing something and part of it is because we're primates and we actually want to be around others of our kind and i get it and it's difficult but literally to save the world all we have to do is nothing this is an opportunity that you know no generation has ever had before where they literally had to do nothing to save the world um and it's easy not to mess it up and yet but um if you listen to politicians who are not uh, the experts in how viruses spread and how infection works and the exponential, exponentiality of uh, this particular uh, disease, um, then what's gonna happen is, is already known. We're going to get a much larger number of people sick. We're going to get a much larger number of people who are going to have to go to the hospital. Um, we're going to swamp our medical system because our medical system is designed for a certain number of people in our, you know, uh, culture being sick at one particular time, not a massive increase in that. I mean, and I get it, you know, uh, the, the, we want things to be back to normal. Um, but they, you know, but if we don't see through what we need to do right now, um, then it's going to last, this is going to last longer. The damage is going to be greater. All the people, you know, the choice is, do you do what the scientists say now? Um, and it's tough and it's hard and it's going to crash the economy, uh, but people will live. Or do you not do what the scientists tell you to do? Uh, in which case, you uh, we, lots of people die, we swamp our medical system, and then we have to do what the scientists tell us to do anyway, right? And you know, the question is, uh, who do you trust and who do you want to uh, listen to? I know who I trust and who I want to listen to, and it's not the people who are interested in saving the stock market today. The stock market's gonna be fine. The stock market's gonna recover, but again, your grandmother or your child or your friend or your partner may not and these are the things that you have to decide whether you want to save the system or to save the people
0: Right, thank you so much, John Listeners, I have been speaking with John Scalzi, Author of the Interdependency Saga The most recent volume of which is The Last Impro, Published by our friends at Tor Signed copies of The Last Impro can be pre-ordered At www.quailridgebooks.com With free shipping And hey, Ridge Books will ship the rest of your books to you for free as well John, it has been a pleasure chatting with you And a pleasure reading your books Thank you so much for joining me
1: You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Once again, I would like to thank John Scalzi for joining me. Signed copies of The Last Impro can be pre ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com. If you are stuck at home due to coronavirus-related concerns, Quail Ridge Books will ship you your books for free. Again, visit www.quailridgebooks.com and we will ship you all of your books for free. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Booking.